Cheetos handmade vodka had been mixed with its fair share of cocktails. But one night, a chilled glass topped with lime and cranberry would change everything this bottle knew about happy hour. From the producers of America's Favorite Vodka, it turns out the cocktail you've been waiting for was right there the whole time. The Tito's Rom Cosmo. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll sip with Tito's. Coming to cocktail parties near you at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel grammar girl here i'm mignon fogarty and on this show we talk about writing history rules and cool stuff Today, I have a segment about some of the theories behind humor writing and a segment about the two spellings of woe. Adding humor to your writing is more than just telling a few jokes or dropping in some funny-sounding names. It's more than relying on tried-and-true tropes and truisms. It's more about creating unusual situations for characters to react to or catching your readers pleasantly off guard with unexpected connections. A law firm called Dewey Cheeto Manhau is only going to be funny once. Two dentists named Ketchum and Pullum has a limited shelf life. Ken Jennings explained the secret to good humor writing in his book, Planet Funny. He wrote, Don't say funny things, say things funny. There are as many as 12 different theories and practices you can use to get a laugh with your writing that go beyond advice like use words that end in K or use funny names. You can find rich sources of humor if you can tell a story where normal people are in an unusual situation or unusual people are in a normal situation. That's a comedy screenwriting technique called fish out of water. And you can see it in TV shows like Schitt's Creek, Community, or Big Bang Theory, or even great movies like Back to the Future. You can tell stories like that all day long, mining a variety of situations for all kinds of humor, and never once resort to a name like Harry Plopper. Let's look at four of the most frequently used sources of humor that you can use to get your audience laughing. The first is called Iceberg Theory. It isn't officially a humor technique, but it's important to most good writing, including humor. Iceberg theory refers to the fact that the portion of the iceberg that you can see is supported by the much larger portion that's underwater. The American author Ernest Hemingway created the idea of the iceberg theory, telling writers that they needed to have all kinds of knowledge and details in their minds when they wrote about a subject. As he said in his story, Death in the Afternoon, quote, If a writer of prose knows enough of what he's writing about, he may omit things that he knows, and the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one-eighth of it being above water. A writer who omits things because he doesn't know them only makes hollow places in his writing. Unquote. 
Humor works on the iceberg theory because you're only describing the parts of the story that are needed to get a reaction out of your reader. You can leave out the extra details and the readers will think for themselves and fill in the details with their own knowledge. This hidden knowledge becomes important with the next three theories. First, we'll talk about surprise. Surprise is one of the most important elements of humor. It's technically called expectation violations theory, and it's based on the premise that a joke is really a lie. When we hear a punchline or are confronted with a funny part of a story, we're surprised by it, which makes us laugh. That's because when someone tells us a story or the beginning of a joke, our brain predicts what's about to come next. But when that prediction fails to come true, when we're lied to and our expectations are violated, we're surprised and we laugh. For example, if you were to lay all your veins out in a line, you would die. Now, when you first heard that sentence, your brain probably thought, this is a reference to distance. Mignon's going to tell me how many veins I have in my body. Instead, it took a surprising and dark turn, which probably made you laugh. So one way to add humor to your writing is to catch someone off guard. For instance, if you were describing a haunted house that was all dank, dark, and dirty, and then mentioned a Hello Kitty poster on the wall, that would be surprising. And if you write it effectively, you can get a laugh from your reader. The other side of the surprise coin is relatability. When we recognize a situation or a setting, when we can relate to it, Even if it's unexpected, it's that relatability that makes us laugh. Did you hear that the guy who wrote the Hokey Pokey died? It took two weeks to put him in his coffin. That joke is relatable to anyone who knows what the Hokey Pokey is and remembers singing it when they were kids. Our recognition of that old song, you put your left foot in, you put your left foot out, makes the punchline work. If you don't know the song, then it doesn't make any sense at all. Eric Deckers, the author of this piece, told me he was 42 the first time he ever heard this joke, and he laughed so hard he cried. (laughs) The recognition of the song happened in the split second after I said, hokey pokey. You remembered the melody, you remembered the lyrics, and you remembered the hands and feet going in and out. You may have even had a brief flashback to singing the song in school. Then, when I said it took two weeks to put him in his coffin, all those memories about the original song told you exactly why it took so long. It was the relatability of the original song lyrics being applied to this particular situation that got the laugh. There may have been an element of surprise there, too, but the main tool was relatability. This is also an example of the iceberg theory at work, because the joke relies on you knowing something we didn't directly tell you the song lyrics. You can use relatability in your writing by describing situations where you or your characters are doing something we've all done. For example, if you were writing about going to school, you could talk about that one kid who ate paste when you were in first grade and how they said it tasted better than the lunch they served. Not everyone would get it, but then again, not everyone will get anything you write. Finally, exaggeration humor comes from taking something fairly common, relatability, and then exaggerating an aspect of that thing to the point of unlikelihood or impossibility. The new image is something so ridiculous as to be silly, but still remains funny. 
For example, I knew a guy who was so creepy, his van had a basement. Now, clearly vans don't have basements, but when you think about a van, what kind of van did you imagine? Was it a white van without any windows, the kind kidnappers might use? And then you think about a basement. Was it the creepy basement from Silence of the Lambs? Now, can you imagine a van with stairs leading down to the Silence of the Lambs basement? It couldn't exist in real life, but we can imagine it, and that exaggeration will get a laugh. The British comedy troupe Monty Python was known for the exaggerated comedy in their movies and TV shows, as were shows like the IT Crowd, Community, and even the old Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. You can exaggerate the characteristics of people, places, or things. You could talk about how you grew up in a small town and your neighbor was so nosy she knew about your parents' divorce before they did. Or how the town's mayor was also the barber, undertaker, and owned the gas station. Or how the signs that said you were entering and leaving the town were across the street from each other. (laughs) There's obviously a lot more to humor writing, but these are four of the biggest ones you'll see, read, or hear. And they're a great place to start if you want to add some zing to your writing. Also, the next time you read or watch something funny, see if you can spot when the writers used surprise, relatability, or exaggeration, and how they relied on the iceberg theory to get you to laugh. That segment was written by Eric Deckers, a professional writer and the co-author of four social media books, including Branding Yourself, where he included me as one of his case studies. He recently published his first humor novel, Mackinac Island Nation, and celebrated his 25th anniversary as a newspaper columnist, with more than 1,300 published humor columns. Whoa can mean stop, like in this Keanu Reeves clip from Sweet November. Whoa, 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 hold on. Or it can mean wow, like he often said in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Whoa! 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 It's supposed to be spelled W-H-O-A, but I keep seeing it spelled W-O-A-H and hearing complaints from other people who see it spelled that way. Here's a way to remember the proper spelling. Who? and ho are two origins that are often cited for woe. For example, Dictionary.com states that ho came first as a Middle English command to make a horse stop, and then evolved sometime around 1620 into woe. To remember how to spell woe, remember that the original word ho, something you'd say to a horse, stays intact in the middle of the word. Also, in 1616, in the play The Winter's Tale, William Shakespeare had a character known only as Shepherd call out, Whoa, ho, ho! Say it in your mind, Whoa, ho, ho! Say it loudly, like Santa Claus, Whoa, ho, ho! The extra ho's after the woe should also help you remember to keep the H-O, ho, in the middle. And what about the other spelling that most editors would tell you is wrong? Well, I've seen multiple people argue that the two spellings mean different things, that what we consider the correct spelling is how you tell a horse to stop, and what we consider the wrong spelling is how you express wonderment, like, whoa. And some people are definitely making a distinction that way, but it's not the accepted way to write it yet. 
I've also seen multiple people comment that W-O-A-H looks like it should be pronounced WOA, since it looks like it should rhyme with Noah. And wow, did that ruin any chance of it having a different meaning for me. Now that I've seen it that way, I can't unsee it. In a Words We're Watching blog post, the Merriam-Webster editors actually say they're watching WOA as an alternative spelling of woe, but not as a word with a different meaning. They track how words are used in published text, and they've seen an increase in the WOA spelling since around 1990, and a Google Ngram search shows the same thing. But it still looks like those are mostly errors that slipped through editing, rather than people deliberately writing it a different way. And for what it's worth, the earliest entry in the Urban Dictionary for the WOA spelling doesn't show up until 2003. And a final interesting note is that the WOA spelling appears to be much more acceptable in British English than it is in American English. The Collins Dictionary, which is published in the UK, has a note that the W-O-A-H spelling is a variant in British English. And Lynn Murphy, an American linguist who's been teaching and living in England for many years, told a wonderful story on her blog, Separated by a Common Language, about her husband using the W-O-A-H spelling and her thinking he was wrong, but then also seeing it in The Guardian and on an airport sign, and then doing some database searches to find that, indeed, W-O-A-H is much more common in Britain than it is in the U.S., So the quick and dirty tip is if you're an American, stick to the W-H-O-A spelling, at least if you care whether people think you've made a mistake. You can remember that spelling by thinking of the ho-ho-ho in the middle, and that it shouldn't look like it rhymes with Noah. And if you're using British English, you get to be a little more lax this time, because it looks like both spellings are acceptable. But if you want to be extra precise, I'd still stick with the American spelling, since the other one seems to be considered a variant. Finally, I have a familect story from Casey. Hi, Mignon. My name is Casey, and I'm calling from New Jersey, so I grew up in Illinois. And I wanted to share a familect story with you. When I was younger, my family and I used to celebrate Easter with a traditional Easter egg hunt. My sister and I loved scouring the house looking for the hidden eggs. One year, some of the eggs were particularly tricky to find, but we were determined to get them all. We need to look under every hair and penny, I exclaimed, confusing the phrase nook and cranny. My parents found that funny, of course, but the irony was that one of the missing eggs was hidden under a furry stuffed tiger, so we indeed had to look under every hair. Today, if someone in my family is looking for something, we know that looking under every hair and penny means we have to look everywhere, even in the tiniest of places. Thanks for letting me share my story. I'm a big fan of the podcast and love learning new things about the English language. Bye. Thanks, Casey. If you want to call and leave a voicemail with the story of a word your family and only your family uses, the number is 83-321-4-GIRL. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams. And that's all. Thanks for listening.
Tito's handmade vodka had been mixed with its fair share of cocktails. But one night, a chilled glass topped with lime and cranberry would change everything this bottle knew about happy hour. From the producers of America's Favorite Vodka, it turns out the cocktail you've been waiting for was right there the whole time. The Tito's Rom Cosmo. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll sip with Tito's. Coming to cocktail parties near you at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.